and if I shall say that I know him. By this clause, Christ testifies that the necessity of his office constrains him to speak, because silence would be a treacherous denim of the truth. This is a remarkable statement, that God reveals himself to us for this purpose, that we may confess before men the faith which we have in our hearts, when it is needful. For it ought powerfully to strike terror into our minds, that they who act hypocritically to please men, and either deny the truth of God or disfigure it by wicked glosses, not only are gently reproved but are sent back to the children of the devil. John 8, 56-59. Your father Abraham exulted to see my day, and he saw it and rejoiced. The Jews then said to him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus concealed himself, and went out of the temple. Your father Abraham, he grants to them, in words only, what he formerly took from him. That Abraham is the father but he shows how idle is the objection drawn from the name of Abraham. He had no other object, says he, during his whole life, than to see my kingdom flourish. He longed for me when I was absent, you despise me when I am present. What Christ here asserts, concerning Abraham alone, applies to all the saints. But this doctrine has greater weight in the person of Abraham, because he is the father of the whole church. Whoever then desires to be reckoned in the number of the godly, let him rejoice, as he ought to do, in the presence of Christ. For which Abraham ardently longed, exalted to see my day. The word exult expresses a vehement zeal 248. And ardent affection, we must now supply the contrast. Though the knowledge of Christ was still so obscure, Abraham was inflamed by so strong a desire that he preferred the enjoyment of it to everything that was reckoned desirable. How base then is the ingratitude of those who despise and reject him when he is plainly offered to them? The word day does not, in this passage, denote eternity, as Augustine thought. But the time of Christ's kingdom, when he appeared in the world clothed with flesh, to fulfill the office of Redeemer. But a question now arises, how did Abraham behold, even with the eyes of faith, the manifestation of Christ? For this appears not to agree with another statement of Christ. Many kings and prophets desired to see the things which you see, and yet did not see them. Luke 10 24. I reply, faith has its degrees in beholding Christ. Thus the ancient prophets beheld Christ at a distance, as he had been promised to them, and yet were not permitted to behold him present, as he made himself familiarly and completely visible, when he came down from heaven to men. Again, we are taught by these words that, as God did not disappoint the desire of Abraham, so he will not now permit anyone to breathe after Christ, without obtaining some good fruit which shall correspond to his holy desire. The reason why he does not grant the enjoyment of himself to many is the wickedness of men, for few desire him. Abraham's joy testifies that he regarded the knowledge of the kingdom of Christ as an incomparable treasure, and the reason why we are told that he rejoiced to see the day of Christ is, that we may know that there was nothing which he valued more highly. But all believers receive this fruit from their faith, that, being satisfied with 
Christ alone, in whom they are fully and completely happy and blessed, the consciences are calm and cheerful. And indeed no man knows Christ aright, unless he gives him this honor of relying entirely upon him. Others explain it to mean, that Abraham, being already dead, enjoyed the presence of Christ when he appeared to the world, and so they make the time of desiring and the time of seeing to be different. And indeed it is true, that the coming of Christ was manifested to Holy Spirit's aft. Now we know, the reprobate persist in the stupidity, and are not moved by promises any more than by threatenings, so that they can neither be led nor drawn to Christ. Some think that they slanderously torture his words, by using the expression, taste of death, which Christ had not used. But this appears to me to be groundless. I rather think that both of the phrases, to taste of death and to see death, were used by the Hebrews in the same sense, namely, to die but they are false. Interpreters in this respect, that they apply the spiritual doctrine of Christ to the body. No believer, shall see death, because believers, having been born again of incorruptible seed, 1 Peter 1 23. Live even when they die, because, united to Christ their head, they cannot be extinguished by death. Because death is to them a passage into the heavenly kingdom, because the spirit, dwelling in them, is life on account of righteousness. Romans 8 10. Until he swallow up all that remains of death. But those men, being carnal, cannot perceive any deliverance from death, unless it appear manifestly in the body. And it is a disease too common in the world, that the greatest part of men care almost nothing about the grace of Christ, because they judge of it only by the carnal perception. That the same thing may not happen to us, we must arouse our minds, that they may discern spiritual life in the midst of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham? This is another offense, that they endeavor to obscure the glory of Christ by the splendor of Abraham and of the saints. But as all the stars are thrown into the shade by the brightness of the sun, so all the glory that is to be found in all the saints must fade away before the incomparable brightness of Christ. They act unjustly and absurdly. Therefore, in contrasting the servants with the Lord, and they even act improperly towards Abraham and the prophets, by abusing their name in opposition to Christ. But this wickedness has prevailed in almost every age, and prevails even in the present day, that wicked men, by mangling the works of God, make him appear to be contrary to himself. God glorified himself by the apostles and martyrs, the papists frame idols for themselves out of the apostles and martyrs, that they may occupy the place of God, and do they not, in this manner, manufacture engines out of the very favors of God, to destroy his power? For how little remains for God or for Christ, if the saints have all that the papists so lavishly bestow upon them? Wherefore, we ought to know that the whole order of the kingdom of God is destroyed, unless prophets, apostles, and all that can be called saints, be placed far below Christ, that he alone may hold the highest rank. And, indeed, we cannot speak of the saints more respectfully than when we place them below Christ. But the papists, though they may deceive the ignorant by boasting that they are faithful admirers of the saints, offer an insult both to God and to them, because, by assigning to them a lofty station, they reduce Christ to a level with them. And, indeed, they are doubly in the wrong, because they prefer the saints to Christ in doctrine, and because, by clothing themselves with the spoils of Christ, they deprive him of almost all his power. If I glorify myself, before replying to that unjust comparison, he begins by saying that he does not seek his own glory, and thus meets the slander. If it be objected, that Christ also glorified himself, the answer is easy, 
that he did so, not as man, but by the direction and authority of God. For here, as in many other passages, he distinguishes between himself and God, by way of concession. In short, he declares that he desires no glory whatever but what has been given him by the Father. We are taught by these words that, when God glorifies his Son, he will not permit the world to hate or despise him with impunity. Meanwhile, those voices sounding from heaven, kiss the Son, Psalm 2 colon 12, let all t. He who is of God, as he has a full right to take this for granted, that he is the ambassador of the heavenly Father, and that he discharges faithfully the office which has been committed to him, he kindles into greater indignation against them, for their impiety was no longer concealed. Since they were so obstinate in rejecting the word of God, he had showed that they could not bring forward anything which he had not taught us from the mouth of God. He concludes, therefore, that they have nothing in common with God, for they do not hear the words of God. And, without saying anything about himself, he charges them with being at war with God. Besides, we are taught by this passage that there is not a more evident sign of a reprobate mind than when one cannot endure the doctrine of Christ, even though, in other respects, it shone with angelic sanctity, as on the contrary, if we embrace that doctrine cheerfully, we have what may be called a visible seal of our election. For he who has the word enjoys God himself, but he who rejects it excludes himself from righteousness and life. Wherefore, there is nothing which we ought to fear so much as to fall under that dreadful sentence. Do we not say well? They show more and more how greatly they are stupefied by Satan. For, though they are fully convicted, still they are enraged, and are not ashamed to show that they are utterly desperate. Besides, though they bring a double reproach against Christ, still they wish to do nothing more than to say in a few words, that he is a detestable man, and that he is actuated by a wicked spirit. The Jews reckoned the Samaritans to be apostates and corruptors of the law. And therefore, whenever they wished to stamp a man with infamy, they called him a Samaritan. Having no crime more heinous, therefore, to reproach Christ with, they seize at random, and without judgment, this vulgar taunt. To express it in a few words, we see that with effrontery they curse him, as men are wont to do when, infuriated like enraged dogs, they cannot find anything to say. I have not a devil. He passes by the first charge, and clears himself only of the second. Some think that he did so, because he disregarded the insult offered to his person, and undertook only the defense of the doctrine. But they are mistaken, in my opinion, for it is not probable that the Jews were so ingenious in distinguishing between the life and the doctrine of the Lord Jesus. Besides, the dislike of this name arose, as we have said, from this circumstance, that the Samaritans, being perverse and degenerate observers of the law, had debased it by many superstitions and corruptions, and had polluted the whole worship of God by foreign inventions. Augustine flies to allegory, and says that Christ did not refuse to be called a Samaritan, because he is a true guardian of his flock. But Christ's intention appears to me to have been different, for since the two reproaches cast upon him had the same object, by refuting the one, he refutes the other, and, indeed, if the matter be duly considered, they insulted him more grievously by calling him a Samaritan than by 
calling him a demoniac but, as I have already said, Christ satisfies himself with a simple refutation. Which he draws from what is contrary, when he asserts that he labors to promote the honor of his Father, for he who duly and sincerely honors him must be guided by the Spirit of God, and must be a faithful servant of God. You have dishonored me. This clause may be explained, as if it were a complaint of Christ, that he does not receive the honor due to him on account of his promoting the glory of God. But I think that he looks much higher, and connects the glory of the Father with his own, in this manner. I claim nothing for myself which does not tend to the glory of God, for his majesty shines in me, his power and authority dwells in me, and therefore, when you treat me so disdainfully, you pour contempt on God himself. He a mediator. Why do you not understand my language, that you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil, and you wish to execute the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he did not remain in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Why do you not understand my language? In this passage, he reproaches the Jews with the obstinacy, which was so great, that they could not even endure to hear him speak, hence he infers that they are actuated and hurried away by diabolical rage. Some make a distinction here between language and speech, as if speech had a more extensive meaning, but I do not see it. And besides, it would not be appropriate that the word which means less should be placed first. Many point this verse in such a manner as to make the question close with the word language. As if the question consisted only of these words, why do you not understand my language? So that the reason is immediately assigned, because you cannot hear my word. But I think that it ought rather to be read in immediate connection, as if he had said, what is the reason why my speech appears to you? Barbarous and unknown, so that I gain nothing by speaking to you, and so that you do not even deign to open your ears to receive what I say. In the former clause, therefore, he reproves the stupidity, in the latter, he reproves their obstinate and ungovernable hatred of his doctrine, and he afterwards assigns a reason for both, when he says, that they are sprung from the devil for by putting the question, he intended to take out of their hands what was the subject of the continual boasting, that they are led by reason and judgment to oppose him. You are of your father the devil. What he had twice said more obscurely, he now expresses more fully, that they are the devil's children but we must supply the contrast, that they could not cherish such intense hatred to the Son of God, were it not that they had for their father the perpetual enemy of God. He calls them children of the devil, not only because they imitate him, but because they are led by his instigation to fight against Christ. For as we are called the children of God, not only because we resemble him, but because he governs us by his spirit, because Christ lives and is vigorous in us, so as to conform us to the image of his father, so, on the other hand, the devil is said to be the father or those whose understandings he blinds, whose hearts he moves to commit all unrighteousness, and on whom, in short, he acts powerfully and exercises his tyranny, as in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2, and in other passages. The Manichaeans foolishly and ineffectually abuse this passage to prove their absurd tenets. For since when scripture calls us the children of God, this does not refer to the transmission or origin of the substance, but to the grace of the Spirit, which regenerates us to newness of life, so. This swing of Christ does not relate to the transmission of substance, but to the corruption of nature. 
of which man's revolt was the cause and origin. When men, therefore, are born children of the devil, it must not be imputed to creation, but to the blame of sin. Now Christ proves this from the effect, because they willingly, and of their own accord, are disposed to follow the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He explains what are those desires, and mentions two instances, cruelty and falsehood, in which the Jews too much resembled Satan. When he says that the devil was a murderer, he means that he contrived the destruction of man, for as soon as man was created, Satan, impelled by a wicked desire of doing injury, bent his strength to destroy him. Christ does not mean the beginning of the creation, as if God implanted in him the disposition to do injury, but he condemns in Satan the corruption of nature, which he brought upon himself. This appears more clearly from the second clause, in which he they answered, and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man, who have spoken to you the truth which I have heard from God, Abraham did not this. You do the works of your father. They said therefore to him, We were not born of fornication, we have one father, who is God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded and came from God, for I did not proceed from myself, but he sent me. Abraham is our father. This altercation shows plainly enough how haughtily and fiercely they despised all Christ's three proofs. What they continually claim and vaunt of is that they are Abraham's children, by which they do not simply mean that they are the lineal descendants of Abraham, but that they are a holy race, the heritage of God, and the children of God. And yet they rely on nothing but the confidence of the flesh. But carnal descent, without faith, is nothing more than a false pretense. We now understand what it was that so greatly blinded them, so that they treated Christ with disdain, though armed with deadly thunder. Thus the word of God, which might move stones, is ridiculed in the present day by papists, as if it were a fable, and fiercely persecuted by fire and sword, and for no other reason but that they rely on their false title of the church, and hope that they will be able to deceive both God and man. In short, as soon as hypocrites have procured some plausible covering, they oppose God with hardened obstinacy, as if he could not penetrate into their hearts. If you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. Christ now distinguishes more plainly between the bastard and degenerate children of Abraham, and the true and lawful children, for he refuses to give the very name to all who do not resemble Abraham. True, it frequently happens that children do not resemble, in the conduct, the parents from whom they are sprung, but here Christ does not argue about carnal descent, but only affirms that they who do not retain by faith the grace of adoption are not reckoned among the children of Abraham before God. For since God promised to the seed of Abraham that he would be the God, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in the generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. Genesis 17, 7. All unbelievers, by rejecting this promise, excluded themselves from the family of Abraham. The state of the question therefore is this, ought they to be accounted Abraham's children who reject the blessing offered to them in the word, so that, notwithstanding of this, they shall be a holy nation, the heritage of God, and a royal priesthood. Exodus 19, 6, Joel 3, 2. Christ denies this, and justly, for they who are the children of the promise must be born again by the Spirit, and all who desire to obtain a place in the kingdom of God ought to be new creatures. 
Carnal descent from Abraham was not indeed useless, and of no value, provided that the truth were added to it. 4. Election dwells in the seed of Abraham, but it is free, so that all whom God sanctifies by his Spirit are accounted heirs of life. But now you seek to kill me. He proves from the effect that they are not the children of God, as they boasted, because they oppose God. And, indeed, is there anything in Abraham that is more highly commended than the obedience of faith? This then is the mark of distinction. Whenever we are required to distinguish between his children and strangers, for empty titles, whatever estimation they may procure before the world, are of no account with God. Christ therefore, concludes again, that they are the children of the devil, because they hate with deadly hatred. True and sound doctrine. We were not born of fornication. They claim no more for themselves than they did formerly. For it was the Sam. The truth shall make you free. He commends the knowledge of the gospel from the fruit which we derive from it, or, which is the same thing, from its effect, namely, that it restores us to freedom. This is an invaluable blessing. Hence it follows, that nothing is more excellent or desirable than the knowledge of the gospel. All men feel and acknowledge that slavery is a very wretched state, and since the gospel delivers us from it, it follows that we derive from the gospel the treasure of a blessed life. We must now ascertain what kind of liberty is here described by Christ, namely, that which sets us free from the tyranny of Satan, sin, and death. And if we obtain it by means of the gospel, it is evident from this that we are by nature the slaves of sin. Next, we must ascertain what is the method of our deliverance. For so long as we are governed by our sense and by our natural disposition, we are in bondage to sin, but when the Lord regenerates us by his Spirit, he likewise makes us free, so that, loosed from the snares of Satan, we willingly obey righteousness. But, regeneration proceeds from faith, and hence it is evident that freedom proceeds from the gospel. Let papists now go and proudly vaunt of the free will, but let us, who are conscious of our own slavery, glory in none but Christ our deliverer. For the reason why the gospel ought to be reckoned to have achieved our deliverance is, that it offers and gives us to Christ to be freed from the yoke of sin. Lastly, we ought to observe, that freedom has its degrees according to the measure of the faith, and therefore Paul, though clearly made free, still groans and longs after perfect freedom. Romans 7 24. We are Abraham's seed. It is uncertain if the evangelist here introduces the same persons who formerly spoke, or others. My opinion is, that they reply to Christ in a confused manner as usually happens in a promiscuous crowd, and that this reply was made rather by despisers than by those who believed. It is a mode of expression very customary in scripture, whenever the body of a people is mentioned, to ascribe generally to all what belongs only to a part. Those who object that they are Abraham's seed, and have always been free, easily inferred from the words of Christ that freedom was promised to them as to people who were slaves but they cannot endure to have it said that they, who are a holy and elect people, are reduced to slavery for. Of what avail was the adoption and the covenant, Romans 9, 4, by which they were separated from other nations, but because they were accounted the children of God. They think, therefore, that they are insulted, when freedom is exhibited to them as a blessing which they do not yet possess. But it might be thought strange that they should maintain that they never were enslaved, since they had been so frequently oppressed by various tyrants, and at that time were subjected to the Roman yoke, and groaned under the heaviest burden of slavery, and hence it may be easily seen how foolish was the boasting.
yet they had this plausible excuse that the unjust sway of their enemies did not hinder them from continuing to be free by right. But they erred, first, in this respect, that they did not consider that the right of adoption was founded on the mediator alone, for how comes it that Abraham's seed is free, but because, by the extraordinary grace of the Redeemer, it is exempted from the general bondage of the human race. But there was another error less tolerable than the former, that though they were altogether degenerate, yet they wished to be reckoned among the children of Abraham, and did not consider that it is nothing else than the regeneration of the spirit that makes them lawful children of Abraham and indeed, it has been too common a vice in almost all ages to refer to the origin of the flesh the extraordinary gifts of God, and to ascribe to nature those remedies which Christ bestows for correcting nature. Meanwhile, we s.